Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce Larry Summers, distinguished professor at Harvard, former president of Harvard, former Treasury Secretary under President Clinton, and uh, top economic advisor to President Obama. Uh, Larry, you, in your comments that you just made, you said that banks, despite all the capital that they have raised, are not necessarily better capitalized or better protected from a downturn. Does that mean that we are as vulnerable now to a financial crisis as we were in 2008? I, I wouldn't go quite that far, Lisa. We, we've done a whole set of things. Uh, banks are much more liquid uh, than they were in 2008. They've surely learned some lessons about the management of their activities from what has taken place in 2008. But the idea that we're on a new plateau of capital which has been embraced by the regulatory community to an extent that surprised me very greatly when I looked at it, doesn't really show up in market data. So just You don't see it if you look at the value of their common stock relative to the value of their assets. If a business becomes much less levered, what you expect is that it's going to become much less volatile. And there isn't really much evidence for that uh, in the pattern of uh, bank stock prices. And so I am, relative to uh, stock prices of, uh, other, of other firms, and so I am concerned that we may not be in as strong a position as uh, we think we are. I don't think that's an imminent threat right now, but We've not seen the last recession in the United States. We've not seen the last period of excess. And I'm not certain that our system is quite as robust as many people suppose. You also said that you are skeptical of the idea that the Volcker Rule has been a net benefit to financial stability. So should it be repealed? I think it's certainly, we certainly need to take a very hard, uh, hard look at... Uh, what the consequence? What the consequences have been? You know, in some ways, uh, it may already have happened. I'm not sure institutions that abandon businesses are going to go back to those businesses, uh, no matter uh, no matter what. But it does seem to me that uh, an idea that had uh, had a certain argument uh, in favor of it um, doesn't look to have been the contributor to financial stability uh, that, uh, that many hoped. Uh, there isn't really any evidence, even in all the retrospective since, that proprietary trading was an important contributor to the crisis. And I think that anything that removes a viable business line, anything that involves lar very large compliance costs, and anything that adds to illiquidity in markets is at least not is at least having some adverse effects on financial stability and one would have to ask what the offsetting benefits were so do you think that if more regulations were rolled back that it could actually increase financial stability by increasing profitability of banks i, I think 
I, I think the great mistake is to have a debate that's all about more regulation versus less regulation instead of better regulation versus worse regulation. And I think that uh, more regulation on the shadow banking system, more regulation to make sure that uh, banks are responsive to dynamic changes in their capital position uh, is very much appropriate. But I think it is appropriate to review the huge compliance burdens that have been placed on many institutions to see whether those compliance burdens are really necessary. And yes, I think you caught a key point, Lisa, which is that a bank's expectation of future profitability offers secures to security to those who lend it funds. And if you undermine that future profitability, you are undermining banks borrowing and that in turn is raising questions about financial stability. Another point that you raised was the importance of regulators in the next downturn to be very open and to respond incredibly proactively uh, to the first signs of a problem. Um, you also recently wrote a column in the Washington Post talking about Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and how he has compromised his credibility with some of his recent comments. Do you believe that his if he continues down this path, that this could compromise, for example, the Treasury's ability to fight a downturn or, or, or other policies being... I think the Treasury Secretary's credibility is a crucial asset in any time of economic crisis. And I think that prudent Treasury Secretaries are very conscious of preserving that uh, credibility. Preserving that credibility means uh, being seen as a person who says what is analytically true rather than says what is politically convenient or expedient. And I think some of the statements that have been made outside of the financial regulatory area, particularly in the tax area, are hard to understand except through the prism of political expediency. Like what? The claims that uh, tax cuts will raise revenue are, I think, ludicrous. The claims that the currently proposed uh, tax cuts will benefit substantially the middle class relative to the wealthy are, I think, indefensible. And I don't think it serves us well um, for policies to be advocated in uh, those kinds of terms. If, as former uh, Treasury Secretary, do you think that the idea of a 50-year or 100-year bond is, uh, is potentially a positive? I think it's something that deserves study if it is linked to um, commitments to long-term investments. And if we can commit to issuing long-term debt to finance high-return long-term investments, then I think it's something that can be uh, very, that can be very attractive. Uh, If it's a standalone independent of uh, making long-term investments, then I think the case is less clear and it depends upon uh, what the appetite for those financial instruments is and at what yield uh, the Treasury will be able to sell them. 
Uh, in a recent column that you wrote for the Financial Times, you were talking about how the Fed, if the Fed overdoes it now, they will have little room to respond in another financial downturn. How likely do you think it is for them to overdo it? Uh, and sort of what would you determine to be overdoing it at this point? Yeah, that's a judgment that you have to make on an ongoing uh, basis. I would just say that I think the risks of a the risks of a recession uh, seem to me or a downturn seem to me to be far more serious than the risks of developing substantially excessive inflation as we did in the 1970s. And so I think the Fed needs to be very cautious about uh, rate hikes. And I think the Fed is has tried to be very cautious about head up, rate about rate hikes. The tendency has been for the Fed to um, expect that over time it will be able to engage in more red hiking, rate hiking than in fact it has been able to. And so I think the Fed has acted uh, prudently in general, but it has sometimes been a bit over optimistic about how much rate increasing it will be able to do uh, in a prudent way. What do you think the terminal level is for how high they can go in this particular cycle? I think the neutral real rate is substantially reduced from where it was, and so the old idea of 4% uh, seems pretty unlikely to me, but uh, just where it will end, uh, I'll wait I'll wait for some more cards to be turned over um, before making that prediction. One thing that I've heard at this conference is people are talking about how they are more concerned that benchmark borrowing costs decline rather than rise, that the idea of yields falling could be more of a threat to financial stability than rising. Would you agree? I'm not sure. Uh, I think it depends on, you know, clearly if you're a pension fund and returns rise and there aren't increases in asset prices that can be uh, returns decline and there aren't increases in asset prices that can be adverse uh, for you on the other hand uh, obviously lower rates are in many respects uh, good for borrowers I think on balance I would tend to think that more liquidity and lower rates tends at least in a short run sense to be favorable for financial stability. I obviously would recognize the concerns that over the longer term, if they lead to unsustainable asset price inflation or lead to the creation of bubbles, that could be problematic. And, and lastly, I just would love to get your thoughts on how big of a risk we are right now of another recession in the near term. Lisa, I don't think that, I don't see the roots of a near-term recession in any of the current data flow. On the other hand, I'm very much aware that uh, you look at the current, you look at history, and people never predict recessions a year in advance. And so, something things have a way of coming up. Uh, I think the right reading of the data is that the odds are about 20% a year that if the economy has not yet gone into recession that it will go into recession in, in the next year. And that would seem to me to be a reasonable estimate right now. Thank you so much, Professor Summers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Larry Summers, a distinguished professor at Harvard, former president of Harvard, former Treasury Secretary under President Clinton and a top economic advisor to President Obama. 
We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Well, uh, this morning, Pacific Investment Management Co., PIMCO, came out and said that it expected 10-year Treasury yields to climb to 3% over the medium term. I am curious to find out whether our next guest agrees. Matthew Freund, he is co-chief investment officer and head of fixed income strategies at Calamus Investments, overseeing $18.3 billion. Uh, the company is based in Naperville, Illinois, and Matt joins us now by phone. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I wanted to start really with treasuries and, and the idea that PIMCO is seeing uh, the idea of 10 years going to 3% uh, in the medium term. Would you agree? Yeah, I think I would. So when you think about treasuries and where they're going, um, in the short run, treasuries are really influenced, I, I think, by uh, federal bank, central bank policy, meaning what What's the Fed going to do? The Fed has told us that they're raising rates, but very, very slowly. The wild card is what they're doing with the balance sheet and whether they decide to aggressively reduce the size of their balance sheet. That's great, but it's put on a position of an economy which is uh, actually looking a lot like last year. So we had a weak Q1. It was weather. It was seasonal factors. But there's always weather or seasonal factors. Earnings look good. Jobs look uh, pretty strong, but really they're acting very late cycle. So when you put it all together, I think that the economy is gradually getting better, that rates are gradually increasing, and that's actually priced into the forward curves now. But I don't think we've seen the low in rates, and I don't think we're going to see the low in rates until we get through the next recession. Fortunately, that's not coming up right away. Hold on a second, because this this to me is a really compelling point. In other words, you think that 10-year yields could potentially go much lower. Yeah, I do. So, again, in the short run, uh, this year is shaping up to look a lot like last year. It's not a recession, but there's no escape velocity either. And in that environment, the idea that rates grind higher makes a lot of sense. Very short term. Longer term, though, we, we haven't outlawed recessions just because rates were lower. We have a new administration. And when the next recession hits, I think we're going to quickly grab the tools that uh, worked in the past. And I think we're going to see rates come a lot lower. The good news, though, uh, you know, the re- a recession doesn't appear to be on the horizon, uh, certainly over the next uh, 9 to 12 months. Well, just to, to give a number to that, where do you think uh, rates could go? No, I think no, I think I think I think the idea the forward curves now have rate ten year rates staying under three percent for the next year or two, and that feels about right. The risk to the long end of the curve is not the Fed moving too fast; it's that the Fed moves too slowly. So, if the Fed were to aggressively raise rates in the short end, I think you'd see the the long end of the curve be very well behaved. You would see a flattening in the yield curve. So I, I think the, the, my base case has to be that rates are gradually getting higher, 
not in a big rush and very, very slowly. But again, we're keeping an eye out. We're, we're watching some things in the economy that worry us, things like increased delinquencies, uh, poor real earnings. Weekly real earnings have actually been poor and, and some, some troubling numbers with tax receipts. So we think the economy is, is fine for a while. Uh, we think that the direct, natural direction of rates would be to trend a little higher. But again, we're not out of the woods. And when that next recession comes, expect rates to retest their lows. So uh, I want to pick up on something that you said about increasing consumer delinquencies. We've seen uh, rising credit card charge-offs, rising auto loan delinquencies. At what point do you care from a systemic point of view? At what point do you say, you know, this means that the consumer is weakening from a credit perspective more than is being currently priced into the market? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. So when you look at delinquencies, they are trending up a little bit but they're trending up from very low levels, certainly levels that uh, uh, bottomed dramatically post what we saw in 08, 09. But it feels like we're at an inflection point. So again, uh, delinquencies are still very low, but the rate of change in those delinquencies is going in the wrong direction. And that's with interest rates, as, as we started talking, being very, very low. Were interest rates to go up unexpectedly, certainly higher that's in my forecast or PIMCO's forecast, uh, consumers are going to be um, stressed. But the most important thing that I'm looking at is, re- and again, I, I don't have the answer. It's a, it's a question. It's a dilemma for the market. Real weekly earnings have been negative. They're, they're right around zero now. And typically, when, you're after, when your real wages, meaning after inflation wages, uh, are really being crimped, you start to um, miss your payments. We're seeing that. And then that generally uh, is an early sign of weakness in the consumer sector, which is the majority of GDP so, or, or uh, production or activity here in the United States. So it is an early warning sign, and it's one we're watching very carefully. So as an investor, how do you take this information and how do you apply it to what you decide to buy or not? You know, that's a great question, too. So I think diversification is really important in this market. And what I've come to find out is that most investors don't want to be diversified. I mean, they say they do. But when you talk to them, they want half their portfolio to go up 10 percent and the other half to go up 20. And that's not the way diversification works. Diversification is where you have assets that will do well in different environments. So with that, right now here at Calamos, we we do think um, that the risk markets have more to run. But again, we we like international markets. We like emerging markets. We think fixed income, even with our expectation that rates will gradually uh, go higher, has a place. It will do well should the economy weaken unexpectedly. It will provide more income. And within the fixed income market, and I like to remind people it's, a, it's, it's not one bond market, it's a market of bonds, we do think that high yield still has some attractive risk returns. I know people are pulling back on risk, mm-hmm. and we are certainly being more cautious. But when you think about high yield, it's always got something wrong with it. That's by <laughs> definition, that's why it's, it, it's high yield. And we do think there are select areas there that we find attractive. Like where? So again, it's, it's not something I'd recommend uh, your listeners going to. We're spending an awful lot of time in retail. So retail is a horrible place um, 
to be from the headlines. I mean, it, there, there's all sorts of stresses. But when there are these sorts of stresses in that space, when there are more sellers, we often find that people are throwing um, good companies out with bad. And even in companies that are a little bit um, stressed, they're throwing good securities uh, out with the bad. And so we're doing a lot of work there, uh, just nibbling at the moment. It's, it's not a dramatic change in what we do, but that's got us very interested. And then the other one is specialty pharma. So we had some interesting news from Valiant and yeah. Endo today. Um, you know, this is the sector that we've been interested in for a long time. Again, it's been out, it's been out of favor. Yeah. Negative headlines, but we often find the best valuations in areas that people don't like. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Really fascinating. Matt Freund, co-chief investment officer and head of fixed income strategies at Calamos Investments in Naperville, Illinois. Uh, the company oversees about $18.3 billion. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here at the 22nd annual financial conference at Amelia Island, Florida. This is Bloomberg. Uh, I am honored to bring in Alicia Garcia Herrero. Did I pronounce that correctly? Perfect. Uh, she is a chief economist for the Asia Pacific region at Natixis and a longtime economist who has advised uh, with everything from the IMF to other uh, authorities to really gauge financial stability across the world. Alicia, you know, you have a viewpoint on the one area that most people have the most questions about, which is China. Do you think that the concerns about a hard landing are over? blown yeah in terms of economic activity they are at least for this year but in terms of financial stability they aren't I think China is indeed undergoing major shockwaves in terms of financial instability and that's not so much about the stock market or what we saw in 2015 it's actually about banks and that's a massive endeavor because today Chinese banks are, as, are actually larger than European banks. So we're talking about 35 trillion US dollar in bank assets in China. It's a major endeavor for any financial regulator to deal with. Well, um, one paper that is going to be presented here today is going to talk about how uh, sort of the unconsidered consequence of China's actions to prevent a crash is that there will just be much slower growth in China over the longer term. Do you currently feel like that slower growth in China, which has been an engine of growth for the world, is currently being priced into markets, particularly emerging markets? Certainly not. It isn't priced in because China, once again, has engineered a fiscal stimulus package. We are still talking about the 2008 fiscal stimulus package as if there weren't any new package. But if you look at fiscal data in China, it's quite obvious that what we call the augmented fiscal deficit. Unfortunately, they don't have a consolidated deficit, so we need to come up with the numbers that are not very accurate. But it's uh, hovering around 10% of GDP. So, if, And that has been the case since 2010. So, you know, once they finish that fiscal stimulus package, they've actually only go on, uh, gone on on the same path. And that means that that growth that we see today is pretty fictitious. So yes, we're not contemplating lower growth down the road, and I think that's due to come. So uh, what do you think is the appropriate growth rate in China to price in, say, 
two years, three years, four years down the road? Well, it's not enormously low. So, so you know, I don't want to go all the way to the, you know, to the uh, catastrophic no, but, but, but it, it could be about six about four percent. So to answer your question, and this is all based on you know potential growth, what is happening with aging, labor productivity coming down. Uh, return on assets below two percent. That's basically where you get it from, uh, and and we are pricing it quite a lot of uh, total factor productivity out of innovation, which is indeed there. So that's not the problem. The problem is that that massive capital dislocation in terms of banks, you know, uh, basically uh, allocating capital in the wrong sectors. Um, through massive uh, government intervention to do so or is, is just lowering down massively the return on assets. So what would that do to the, re- to the countries in that region, the, the countries that depend most on China's mm-hmm. growth? What would that do to their economies if, say, China does go down to a 4% rate from an estimated 6% yeah. rate currently? Actually, that ha- in a way has already happened in 2015, early 2016, because the actual real growth rate in China, especially what was you know the old economy, was probably even lower, and uh, that old economy w- w- was the one that was driving commodity in- imports into China, uh, let alone also parts and components from the rest of China. So I think they've already gone through that, and if you look at their resilience, it was quite impressive. The reason being that if you look at ASEAN uh, as a group in point they're actually much less leveraged than China. They're actually more resilient in a way to China's shock that we actually, China, China's shock that we actually think they are. So I'm not too worried actually about the rest of the region. I'm worried about China though. What's the worst case scenario in 30 seconds? <laughs> um, I don't expect a crisis uh, anytime soon. I think they have enough uh, instruments still today to deal with that. But this will only worsen their potential growth. They, it will only lower that potential growth I just mentioned in the future because of that massive misallocation of, of capital that is still going on. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly a fascinating discussion. Alicia uh, Garcia Herrero, she is chief economist for the Asia Pacific region at Natixis and also a longtime advisor to the IMF. Uh, and she serves as an advisor to the research arm of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, uh, as well as others, someone who has a very clear view on what the challenges are currently facing China and what the solutions are. And just to sort of repeat, because I find this a really fascinating point, the more that China has to do now, the more it's going to slow their longer-term growth and potentially be a threat on that level. Uh, There are reports that health insurers are asking for sharp increases in the cost of their Obamacare plans this year. Why? Well, they blame instability in the law's coverage markets that's been compounded by the Trump administration. To make sense of this, uh, I want to bring in Max Neeson, a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. uh, And Max joins us from the Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Max, what's your take on this? Because so far, three companies uh, have reported uh, their insurance premiums for the Obamacare plans that they have, and the costs are up more than 20%. Yeah, I have to say, it's not especially surprising that this is happening. Uh, Companies are having to price their insurance plans for next year, uh, really having no idea what the market is going to look like next year. There are a couple kind of primary areas of uncertainty. 
Uh, the first is whether the uh, mandate that people buy insurance is going to be enforced next year heavily or, you know, with any kind of uh, urgency by the Trump administration, or even if it'll actually be in place if uh, the AHCA becomes law. So that means that uh, people on these markets might face uh, a less healthy marketplace and have to pay more medic- uh, more healthcare costs because people, healthy people, aren't compelled uh, by that financial penalty to buy insurance. Well, so the just let's put the twenty percent increase in Obamacare premiums in the three st- states that have posted rates so far. Uh, how does that compare to previous uh, premium rate increases in previous years? Because they've been steadily increasing, haven't they? Yeah, um, you know, things vary so much state by state and, and year by year that it's hard to kind of have a consistent comparison. But um, they're they're pretty similar to what, we, and actually somewhat less than what we've seen in some of the states with shakier markets. But um, I, I think the fact that we're seeing this again after kind of, you know, consecutive years of price increases uh, just kind of goes to show how, how concerned insurers are about uh, what the market lo- might look like next year. You know, on top of uh, the mandate, you also have the fact that the administration might choose not to fund, uh, you know, these payments or subsidies that help low-income people pay for out-of-pocket, the out-of-pocket portion of their costs, uh, which helps them kind of maintain insurance and actually uh, get health care. So are actually these insurance companies, when they put out their uh, their estimates for what the uh, plans will cost, uh, do they give some kind of statement about what they hope to see in Washington? Um, I mean, I, I think they're sending a signal that you know, they can't really price it at the level they might otherwise. They have to kind of plan for the worst case scenario. If you price your plan too low and have high medical costs or kind of an unexpectedly um, risky set of, of uh, people that you insure, then you end up losing money. And then uh, that, that's something they're out to avoid. So they're kind of planning for the worst. And I think with the way that they're setting premiums there, they're suggesting that the worst could be uh, pretty bad indeed. Um, well, we thought that the worst could be pretty bad indeed from, for Valiant. I know that you and I have spoken extensively about uh, your views on Valiant. And yet, Valiant's shares are up more than 20%. Yes, I know I just completely changed the topic, but I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this. And I know you cover the uh, issue closely. So do you think that this pop that Valiant is seeing is, is sort of more wishful thinking than reality? Or has Valiant's prospects actually materially changed? I uh, I absolutely think it's once again uh, wishful thinking. Uh, by any kind of conventional measure, Valiant actually had a, a pretty dreadful quarter. Uh, it missed both earnings and revenue estimates. Uh, the company's sales continued to deteriorate pretty aggressively. And, and within that sales decline, there are a bunch of troubling trends for uh, some really important dr- uh, things for the company. But investors kind of seized on what they wanted to see. And in that case, uh, it was a $50 million increase in the company's uh, adjusted, and I mean adjusted, EBITDA <laughs> guidance. So, um, you know, with uh, with the company that's battered as this, uh, people will kind of take what they want. And in this case, uh, because the company for once didn't cut its estimates, uh, they saw it as a big positive. Well, didn't they also sort of uh, suggest that they were going to have some kind of capital raise? And they, they talked about selling uh, a number of their businesses, as they've been doing, um, and they projected a higher full-year forecast. So this also could be potentially positive, no? Yeah, I mean, it's it's more of the same 
rhetoric <laughs> from Valiant. Um, you know, we're going to have more asset sales. We're going to turn the business around, et cetera, et cetera. But it really, um, for the most part, has failed to materialize. I wanted just to switch and quickly get uh, Allergan in because they also reported earnings uh, just now for the first quarter. And uh, they reported earnings that were better than estimates. And it also is seeing a boost. What, what do you make of that? Um, so Allergan, you know, it's it's kind of the anti-Valiant in the sense that, you know, they're able to, because of, you know, their relatively healthier balance sheet, continue to make deals that are kind of accretive in the near term. And you're seeing that with these earnings. So uh, they boosted their, their guidance for the year in part because they acquired Celtic, which is a uh, um, kind of a company that provides a technique that produces fat on the body. Um, and then Botox continues to do really well. So, um, you know, on one hand, it's it's a nice quarter. They're seeing the benefit acquisitions, but they're also not quite seeing kind of a plan for trans- uh, transition of the company from being really narrowly focused on aesthetics, um, you know, things to improve the appearance towards a more conventional pharmaceutical company. It's still the aesthetic stuff that's really uh, driving results. So uh, we'll, we'll see if that transition continues. And perhaps that's the reason why the shares really are not really doing much of anything. So even though Valiant uh, might have a worse outlook, according to you, Max, uh, its shares are up more than 20% just on a mere hope, whereas Allergan is seeing uh, nothing after reporting yet another uh, round of pretty solid earnings. Max Neeson, thank you so much for joining us. Max Neeson is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering healthcare uh, as well as the pharmaceutical industry. And he comes to us from our Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.